This is episode 75 of the Prepper Website Podcast. Today's articles are Essential Body Armor for Teotwaki, Utility Knives, a Prepper Favorite, and Sponge Bath, Keep Clean Without Running Water. Hey, I'm Todd Sepulveda, the editor of PrepperWebsite.com. This podcast is an audible version with some commentary of articles that have been posted on Prepper Website, a daily aggregator of preparedness information. These articles are some of the best of the best that have been recently posted on PrepperWebsite.com. All article links and show information can be found on the PrepperWebsitePodcast.com. Hey, don't forget to sign up for or register for that uh, Legacy Food Mega Sampler Pack. It's uh, over 41,000 calories of food. Um, it's 31 pounds. It's uh, it's a huge monster bucket, man. And so they are giving that away free, or they've uh, allowed me to give one away free. And so uh, you can get to it at uh, the Prepper Website Podcast. You can go ahead and link straight to the, the post that has the registration, or you can go over to Ed That Matters and then scroll down a couple. And it's in the uh, Eating Well with uh, Eating Well when the SHTF, the Legacy Food Mega Sampler Pack. And so you can hit that one, and the Raffle Copter is up at the very top. So uh, uh, don't uh, you know? Don't delay. You, you I guess by the time you hear this uh, podcast, you're gonna have about three days left to uh, register if you haven't done so already. And so uh, we know. I think we have about 700 uh, entries so far. So uh, sounds good. Hey, I do appreciate you uh, supporting the Prepper Website podcast. Uh, you know, there's a lot of ways to support it. You can share us out, uh, and then. Uh, Share us out through social media and then let other people know that we're here. Uh, we do have the email you can be a part of. Try to send out something every uh, every week, something that's uh, you know that's helpful, that's beneficial. Um, and then uh, you'll also get the, the free e-course when you do that. Um, you know, one of the other things, the other ways that you can support uh, the Prepper Website Podcast is if you just if you buy from Amazon, you can use one of our links. We've got it on the Prepper Website Podcast. We've got it on Prepper Website. If you just use one of our links to go to Amazon, uh, you don't. it doesn't cost you anything, but we do get a little percentage. So um, that's always a big blessing. You know, the... Um well, uh, let me start off by saying this. I, you know, I'm really not making any money off the Prepper website podcast. So, uh, I enjoy doing it. Uh, I know like last night I, I was talking about, you know, doing it and uh, it was really late, but it just, by the time I finished, I'm like, I, I had this energy. So it's like, I got to wind down, <laughs> wind down before I go back to bed. So I really enjoy doing it. Uh, but I, I'm not, I'm not earning anything for doing it. Anything extra than what, you know, Prepper website already brings in, uh, from ads and different things like that. Uh, there was a podcast that I listened to, you know, it's a church leadership podcast and, uh, they did over six and a half minutes of just promoting marketing stuff. And I was like, wow, you know, and, and now I guess I, I'm listening to podcasts with all that kind of stuff. I'm not just listening for the content. I'm listening for the way they do things. And, and, and I'm like, wow, you know, that when I looked at the timer, it was like six and a half minutes in. That was a long time. And, and I, I'm going to try not to ever do that, please. If, if I get to six minutes in talking about just, just nonstop talking about marketing and not, you know, not anything else. Uh, you know, please send me an email. Say, hey, Todd. You know, what's up? Uh, I'll try to keep it short. You know, and and I'm. It's not that I'm never going to market things. I'm never going to you know uh, pass things along to you. I mean, next week I'm going to be part of a prepper bundle where I have a you know a, a, an ebook of essays in there, 
And so, uh, you know, I'll be sharing that out with you, but not real hard sells, you know, just letting you know that you can get to it and some of the benefits of doing that. But uh, try never to, to hard sell. I don't put bumper music at the beginning and the end. Uh, you know, I just I just try to get right into the podcast. So I know that's what I would like when I listen to podcasts. I just try to hurry up and get into it. But anyway, hopefully that's uh, that's uh, just a, a little bit of information just passing along to you. Our first article comes to us from the survivalistblog.net. And uh, it is essential body armor for Tiawaki. Uh, so something to consider. All right, so let's go ahead and get into this one. During Tiawaki, long-term survivability will depend upon more than adequate firepower from a diverse gun collection. Historically, men and women who faced violence, conflict, and war did so not just with arms of swords, but also with armor. In dire times of combat, having the ability to protect oneself and loved ones from injury may make the difference between life and death. Many preppers have invested substantial sums of money into firearms. Surprisingly, most have not acquired body armor. This is partly because many believe body armor to be cumbersome to wear and difficult to acquire. Luckily, today's armor is technologically advanced, comfortable to wear, and easy, easily obtainable. Since the rise of civilization, warriors have wielded swords, axes, and spears while relying on armor for protection. King Arthur and his fellow knights wore infamous suits of shiny plate armor. Vikings and Romans wore quilted fabric and hardened leather into battle for protection. Today's common man wields firearms, but it's vital that he also bears armor. Armor was widely used primarily because of its simple design of using a a wearable, hard, dense material to stop the penetration of projectiles and edged weapons into the body while also absorbing, absorbing the impact of blunt force trauma. Primarily, this hard material has traditionally been leather, iron, or steel. Around the mid-20th century, synthetic materials such as woven Kevlar started to be used for protection against small caliber munitions like handguns, but remained ineffective against larger caliber firearms like military rifles. In more recent decades, the use of special formulated ceramic has been substituted for ballistic rated steel in some applications. This is especially the case in regards to armor plates, which are very effective against stopping military rifle fire. Both steel plates and ceramic plates share the same heavy cumbersome characteristics of medieval armor. Thanks to the ongoing scientific advancements of plastics in recent years, high density polyethylene can effectively take the place of steel and ceramic plates. There are many different grades of high-density polyethylene. It's very likely that several plastic bottles in your home have an HDPE label on the bottom, which is an acronym for high-density polyethylene. The toughest HDPE is ultra-high molecular weight polyethylene, or UHMWPE. UHMWPE offers several impressive innovative advantages, the first and most important being weight. A UHMWPE 10 by 12 inch level 3 NIJ rated ballistic plate weighs about 3 pounds. This is considerably less than a comparable level 3 rated steel or ceramic plate. Personally, I have two AR500 steel 10 by 12 inch curved plates with an anti-spall base coating. Each plate weighs slightly over 9 pounds. I am relatively... I am in relative decent shape and wearing two separate nine pound plates for an extended period of time is exhausting and running a full sprint while wearing them is near impossible. 
Having owned AR-500 steel plates for some time now, I've come to realize that I will hardly ever wear them during Tiawaki simply because they are way too heavy and body armor is only effective if you're wearing it. It's probable that every day during Tiawaki I will be physically de demanding due to due to the increased amount of labor required around your home to keep a functioning homestead running. Never mind trying to accomplish that increased workload while having an extra 18-pound strap to your torso. I, so, I see no need for the additional burden of heavy armor when a lightweight option is readily available. Be honest in regards to your physical condition. Tiawaki will not be a time to start going to the gym. If you can't successfully accomplish yard work or walk a short patrol of your property now while wearing a heavy plate carrier, how will you ever be able to do so during Tiawaki? It's also important to remember how precious calories will be during a Tiawaki scenario. Wearing heavy armor plates that equates to wearing a weighted workout vest will surely work up an appetite. Please keep in mind whether you have steel or ceramic plates in your plate carrier, you must also factor in the weight of additional gear that will be on your plate carrier as well, including loaded magazines, first aid materials, a two-way radio, and a water bladder. That's why you must consider UHMWPE armor plates. Two standard size 10 by 12 inch UHMWPE plates will weigh about 6 pounds, which makes all the difference in the world. With only 6 pounds of armor in my plate carrier, I can wear it all day if I need, need to and walking a patrol around the property is a breeze. Another precious attribute that made me decide to switch to UHMWPE plates is because steel and ceramic plates sink in water like concrete blocks. UHMWPE plates, on the other hand, actually float. UHMWPE is actually neutrally buoyant, and even though a typical size plate weighs 3 pounds, they are still light enough to float on the surface of the water. It's important to note that UHMWPE is hydrophobic material and does not absorb any water and plates will retain their original weight no matter how long the plates are exposed to moisture. This is a huge advantage if you plan on being anywhere near water. If you happen to take a plunge while you have 18 pounds of steel or ceramic strapped to your torso, you better remove your armor quickly because you will be sinking like a boat anchor. This is why the U.S. Navy was one of the first military branches to start the shift from steel and ceramic plates to UHMWPE plates. The UHMWPE plates will partially act as a life preserver and help keep you afloat. As lightweight and buoyant as UHMWPE plates are, they also are drop safe, prevent spall, and are capable of sustaining multiple hits. UHMWPE plates are tough. Tough enough to be dropped on the ground and not be a cause for alarm that you just turned your plates into paperweights. It's nice to know that if you have buffer, I'm sorry, butterfingers on occasions and drop your plates on the ground, when you attempt to correctly position them in your plate carrier that no damage will come to the plate. This is not the case with ceramic plates. Dropping a ceramic plate from waist height can cause cracks to form within the plates, which will significantly degrade the ballistic resistance of the plate. The only way to confirm if a ceramic plate has cracks in it after a drop is to pay the price and run it through an x-ray machine. This is not the case with steel plates, however. If you drop a 9-pound steel plate from waist height, make sure you're wearing steel-toed shoes, otherwise you might have to get an x-ray for a different reason. <laughs> steel armor plates could be lighter if it wasn't for the concern of spall and fragmentation. Spall and fragmentation happen when a bullet impacts an armor plate at high speed, causing the bullet to defect 
or maybe deflect into different directions or to break up into pieces. For this reason, steel armor plates must have some sort of material that acts as a shield to catch the impacted bullet. Without it, a bullet or piece of it could easily bounce off the armor plate into a vital part of your body like your neck. This is a concern and the reason why an anti-spall base coat built up is necessary with AR-500 steel plates. But this additional base coat build up can add up to an extra pound in weight to the already heavy steel. Even with a standard amount of anti-spall material applied to a steel plate, it's possible to have some bullet fragmentation leave the safety of the base coat material and enter another part of your body that is not protected with armor. Spall and fragmentation are not a common I'm sorry, spall and fragmentation are not a concern in regards to ceramic and UHM WPE plates. UHM WPE and ceramic plates are designed to expand and hold the impacting bullet within the armor plate. These plates will actually increase in thickness after taking rounds. Of course, UHM WPE can do it at a fraction of the weight compared to ceramic. When researching armor plates also, take into consideration the multi-hit capability of the plate. The manufacturers listed in the next paragraph are producing plates that are rated to take a minimum of six rounds from a 308 caliber rifle. Not that you would necessarily still be standing in the same position after taking just a few of those hits, but it's nice to know the level of abuse the plates are capable of taking. The National Institute of Justice, or NIJ, is the U.S. Department of Justice regulatory agency that has established what constitutes different levels of ballistic resistance. Never buy body armor that is not NIJ rated. Level 3 NIJ rated plates have the ballistic resistance to stop at least one rifle round of 7.62 by 51 millimeter or 308 full metal jacket with a specified mass of 147 grains traveling at a velocity, velocity of 2,780 feet per second. Level 3 armor will stop rounds from a vast majority of military rifles including M4s and AK-47 type rifles. With that said, keep in mind that level 3 plates will not stop armor-piercing rounds. If you believe you would be facing the threat of armor-piercing rounds during Tiatwaki, you will have to opt for steel or ceramic level 4 NIJ certified plates and cope with bringing the weight back up to 9 to 10 pounds per plate. There are no manufacturers that are offering 100% UHM WPE level 4 plates. Weigh your priorities. Having the advantage of being able to wear your plates all day long and even run with them far outweighs the concern of armor-piercing rounds. Again, it's likely that even if I had level 4 plates, I would hardly ever wear them because they are so heavy. Several different companies offer UHM WPE plates, including Spartan Armor Systems, RMA Armament, and DKX Max Armor, all of which offer NIJ-certified ballistic-grade plates. After significant research, I decided on two DKX Max UHM WPE plates, one being a 10 by 12 inch curved shooter cut plate designed for protecting the front of your torso, and the second being a 10 by 12 inch curved square cut plate designed by protecting your back. The shooter's cut weight only, I'm sorry, the shooter's cut weighs only 2.9 pounds, and the square cut weight 3.2 pounds. The shooter's cut has the top corners removed so the plate doesn't interfere when raising your sidearm or shouldering your rifle. You don't have to worry about the rear plate interfering, interfering with your movement, so having a square cut plate which offers greater coverage just makes sense. Both plates are curved to hug your torso, which significantly increases comfort and makes wearing a plate carrier with plates for an extended period of time much easier. 
DKX plates are constructed of a premium type of patented UHM WPE called Dyneema. On a weight-by-weight -weight comparison basis, Dyneema is 15 times stronger than steel. Given the fact that armor plates are used to save lives, it's necessary to consider where the plates were constructed and the source of the raw materials. I feel more comfortable knowing that if a life may be on the line, the product was manufactured in the USA for materials in the USA, and this is the case with DKX plates. So consider picking up a pair for yourself. Currently, the majority of all law-abiding citizens in the U.S. can legally buy body armor as long as you don't have a criminal record. The only state that does not allow its citizens to purchase body armor is Connecticut. That is until the House and Senate passes a bill outlawing civilian ownership of body armor. There have already been steps taken by elected officials to ban civilians from owning body armor. For several years, Representative Michael Honda of California, with seven bill co-sponsors backing him, have been attempting to push H.R. 378, the Responsible Body Armor Possession Act, through the House and Senate. Notice, notice the way they name it, right? H.R. 370, Responsible Body Armor Possession Act, meaning that no one can purchase it, um, you know, so that's, that's the responsible part, is no one can purchase it. <clears throat> anyway, if passed, this act would prohibit the possession, ownership, or purchase of enhanced body armor by civilians, with a few exceptions. The exceptions consist of allowing those who have owned armor prior to the date of the act passing to maintain ownership, uh, also known as being grandfathered, in. Additional exceptions would be granted for civilian personnel who work under a federal or state agency where the possession of body armor is necessary. This proposed act should serve as proper motivation to acquire body armor plates now while you still have the legal opportunity to do so. If you, are, if you too are a prepper who has invested money in firearms that may be used to defend the lives of your loved ones during Tiatwaki, I urge you to acquire lightweight UHM WPE armor plates for your protection. One day they might make the difference between life and death. Please remember a knight that walks into the battlefield with a sword and no armor is not ready for the battlefield. So I, you know, if you are, if you believe that the you know Tiatwaki, the end of the world as we know it, is going to be uh, James Wesley Rawls, uh, you know, patriot uh, type, you know, living, uh, or you know, totally, you know, on the run or always looking over your shoulder, yeah, I, I, you know, this would be a game changer as well as night vision would be a game, you know, all force multipliers for you uh, there. The problem is, you know, with, with a lot of preppers is, you know, the funding, the money, you know, is it there? And so uh, that's one thing to uh, to consider. Uh, but if you can, if you can do it and if you can, uh, you do have the money, uh, you know, that might be something that's reasonable, especially if, uh, you know, we foresee this uh, house bill uh, moving forward and passing and those kinds of things start happening. I, I suspect that if, talk starts happening with this house bill and it does start moving forward and then it goes to the senate um you know for approval whatever i i bet the price of uh of uh, armor body armor is going to go through the roof so it's one another one of those things where uh you know if you were suspecting certain people getting getting elected and there was going to be you know uh a situation where you're concerned about uh, firearms and ammo and stuff like that. Firearms and ammo are never going to be cheaper than they are right now, you know, um, or never again in the future. They're just going to, they're just going to wind up going. I think they're holding right now. Uh, I don't know. They might, they, you might see some uh, people who, uh, 
realize that that Trump was a was elected or whatever, they might start backing off of it, and so prices might go down just a little bit. But uh, I I don't think they're going to go down a whole whole lot because I think the the whole uh, ammo shortage is still fresh on everybody's mind. I still don't think you can buy the the 22 long rifle bricks out there. I mean, if you can, uh, you know, they're going to be a lot more expensive than they were. I, I just I've never seen seen that recover at all the 22 long rifle bricks. But um, but anyway, maybe I'm looking in the wrong places. But so a good article to go check out. And uh, over at the survivalistblog.net. And, you know, like always, uh, MD has a lot of people over there leaving comments. And those comments are always good to, uh, to check out and read. All right, the next article comes to us from TruePrepper.com. Uh, TruePrepper.com has uh, an article called Utility Knives, a Prepper Favorite. And uh, so you might consider getting a utility knife if you don't have one of those uh, after listening to this one. So uh, part of being prepared is having a knife that will be ready and functional every time you need it. The obvious choice for that is a folding pocket knife. But what if you need to cut something you know will dull the blade? You need a replaceable blade, which means a utility knife, sometimes called a razor knife or a box cutter. A utility knife employs common replaceable razor blades to cut pretty much everything. They use a razor blade that has two ends to it, and they all allow you to switch ends of the blade when one gets dull. Finding the best prepper utility knife has been an experience in engineering progress. This evolution shows how ingenuity really can make things better. Fair warning, these knives are wicked sharp. Why? They use actual utility razors. I recommend wearing gloves when using them, even though I sometimes don't myself. When I cut something with a utility knife, I often apply more pressure than with a regular pocket knife. By applying pressure, you increase the chance of slipping, so be careful. Also, the folding knives I mention here usually come with a thin plastic blade cover. I toss those because it is hazardous even trying to slip them onto the blade. Exhibit A, the first modern utility knife. For as long as I've been alive, the old school utility knife has been around handled shell with where the razor blade slides forward when you push on down and forward on a sliding button. More, th- more have, I'm sorry, most have several settings where the blade is partially extended or fully extended. There is one huge problem with these. Once they get a little use, any pressure on the blade causes the blade to retract into the shell. That is quite frustrating when you are trying to make a precise cut and the blade disappears. Also, the rounded shape of the old school utility knife is difficult to grip without it sliding through my big hands. For those reasons, I recommend against the t- this, that type of knife. On the plus side, it usually has a spare blade in the handle. That was that was handle, but sometimes I, I think maybe it's supposedly saying that's handy. That was handy, but sometimes hard to get to because you had to extract a screw to open it. Overall, on this utility knife, I say out of here, meaning don't get one. Exhibit B, the next evolution. Engineers obviously looked at all the issues with the old-school rounded utility knife and designed an awesome replacement. This is a flat-sided folding locking knife that even has a pocket clip. It has no internal blade storage, but mine came with a separate stack of extra blades. Now, you have two things to keep track of. Not good, but this knife is very functional and has a secure blade. The razor can be changed easily and is rock-solid when trying to cut something. To change the blade, just push a button and pull the blade out. How easy is that? 
The shape of the knife is square, which is not as natural in your hands, but did I mention it has a pocket clip? In my opinion, anything with a pocket clip is better than anything without. I've actually carried it in my pocket, and it is pretty comfortable. I have used this style of knife many times, and it has not let me down. I would buy this model if I wanted to carry it often in my pocket. Here's one at Amazon for 14 It even includes a carrying pouch. I, uh, I clicked on that one at Amazon, and that one's not being sold anymore. Uh, but you can, you know, of course, you can go to Amazon and you can click through and uh, find other ones. But yeah, that one's not, or it's currently unavailable, so maybe it's just sold out. Uh, exhibit three, the current generation. Um, tool designers decided it is important to have multiple extra blades inside the knife and created the best and newest model. It is generally the same design as the last version, but the added but they added a compartment inside the handle to hold five extra blades. Convenient. To do that, they made the handle fatter, and now it fits in my big hand better. To change the blade, just lift up on the lever, push down on the side, and pull the blade out. It holds the blade quite securely. The only downside of this model is that the larger width makes it more bulky if you pocket carry it. I usually clip the model to my belt instead of my pocket. It sits next to my tape measure and it is very easy to access. This is a knife I use all the time now and I would recommend this over any other. Here it is for only 13 on Amazon. This highly rated model even has a thumb disc for applying pressure with your thumb. I love my pocket knife and carry with me everywhere, but the real workhorse in my shop is my latest generation utility knife. I abuse it and just swap out the blade and it is just like new again. I recommend one for anyone working on prepper projects, for cutting paracord quickly, and any handyman work around the house. Be safe of being smart. The newest one that he's referring to here, the utility knife, does look pretty cool. Uh, you know, I'd like to know. I, I, you can't tell by looking at the uh, at the picture on Amazon how thick it actually is. Um, you kind of get an idea, but I, you know, I really would maybe the. Um, but, you know, it still doesn't, there is one picture down here, uh, a, I guess a nice little graphic that they have. It doesn't look that big, but uh, I don't know, you'll have to, uh, you'll have to consider it if you're going to pocket carry or not. I, I pocket carry uh, the Leather, Leatherman Wave. Um, there is an add-on clip. I don't know if uh, too many people know about that one, but there's an add-on clip. Uh, it costs $5 on, on Amazon, but it... It's an, it's usually an add-on item, so you have to buy something like for $25 or $30 or something like that, and then you can add that on, and then you add that to your Leatherman Wave, and you can pocket carry. And to to me, really, that hasn't uh, it doesn't feel that much more uh, bulkier. I mean, it is a little bit heavier uh, than the Sidekick that I would wear, but uh, it, it you know it does it's there and and i like having that one i feel a little bit more comfortable having uh you know the little saw and and things like that uh with that leatherman wave so uh this probably wouldn't be as as bulky so i think this one would work pretty cool so i might look into that one right there uh, it's only 13 bucks all right let's go ahead and go on to the last one uh this comes to us from the prepper journal and uh you know every friday podcast i pull uh i pull a an article from the archive. So I go over to um, 
the tag cloud and I try to pull up something that maybe I haven't uh, talked about recently on the podcast and uh, talk about that. And so this one is sponge bath, keeping clean without running water. Hey, if you, uh, it, just by the way, um, the tag cloud is a, is a powerful resource, I, I believe, at Prepper website. I've heard a lot of good things from different people who are just really appreciative of having it. Um, I did write a little article on uh, on the tag cloud over at Ed That Matters. It's, uh, the title of the article is Do Dead Preppers Tell Tells? And um, one of the things behind it is, you know, because Prepper website has been going for so long, some articles are um, are on websites that the websites are just dead. You know, now, for whatever reason, they went, you know, the, the, the person who was running the website decided not to renew or, or got out of preparedness or, or just got fed up or whatever. And uh, so they, they just let their website go. But there is a way to get to those articles. And so I show that to you on Prepper website or uh, on this article, Do Dead Preppers Tell Tales. I'll link to that on uh, episode 75. All right, so let's go ahead and go into this one because I think this has application uh, for those of us who are like maybe camping, those of us who are going off grid, those of us who maybe in the future get to a situation where you don't have the ability to take a shower or take a bath, but you still need to maintain hygiene. So let's go ahead and read this one here. Some 10 years back, I left the city and set out to build a cabin in the Alaskan wilderness. It was late September before I could actually begin construction of the dwelling and the rivers were already freezing. So I had to work hard and quick. Yet, despite the rigorous physical labor, I'd go for days without a bath. At the time, I told myself I couldn't wash because of the cold weather and primitive camp conditions. But now I know that I simply hadn't yet adjusted to new means of keeping clean. Since then, I've spent as much as 26 months at a stretch without even seeing running water, and I very rarely missed my daily bath. I'd like to pass on what I've learned about taking a sponge bath to any of you who may be about to quit the city and its, in, and its conveniences, whether on a permanent or a temporary basis. I once doubted the word of a friend who told me that he'd been taught to take a complete bath with an army helmet full of water. Now I know he was telling the truth because I've done it myself using a hard hat while fighting forest fires. The fact is, it's possible to clean every part of your body but your hair using an ordinary metal wash basin with only seven cups of water, which is just under half a gallon. A complete bush country bathing outfit should include a 15-inch metal basin, washcloth, towel, soap, baking soda, and fingernail brush. It's best to stay away from enamel basins. They'll eventually crack and you'll ram an enamel chip under your fingernail sooner or later. And steel tubs will rust in spite of their shiny appearance when new. Aluminum basins, on the other hand, have never failed me. Whatever type of basin you use, however, keep a fingernail brush handy for scrubbing out the dirt film after you bathe. The real secret of this water-conserving wash method is the elimination of soap from most of the bath. If you really lather up your face, the problem of getting rid of the suds, and when you're washing from a small tub, this can be such a chore that you may start to skip baths altogether. You'll be better off if you take a bath without soap every single day. Simply rub down well with a hot, wet wash rag, rinsing the cloth frequently. You may want to use soap on the hairy parts of your body, but this small amount of suds can usually be rinsed off with a damp rag. 
Hair washing presents a special problem, again, because it's very difficult to rinse off the suds. Leftover soap or shampoo is bound to make your scalp itch, but you can get your crowning glory clean and avoid the itches by using baking soda. You see, all soaps are made by combining a fat and an alkali, usually lye. Baking soda itself, a mild alkali, seems to react with hair oils to produce its own natural mild washing product. Under the proper conditions, soda will even create a copious lather. To wash your hair, put two or three cups of soft water into the basin. Make sure the liquid is as hot as your scalp can stand. Add two or three tablespoons of baking soda, not baking powder. Then bend over the basin and soak your scalp. Comb the soda solution through your hair, backwards, forward, and sideways. Any dirt will immediately begin to wash out and in a short time will neutralize most of the soda. So after you've combed the solution through your hair several, several times, throw out the first batch of soda water and prepare another. Repeat the co combing process. Then pile your wet hair on top of your head to let the bicarb shampoo work while you take your bath and brush your teeth. When you draw your bath water, add a heaping teaspoon of soda to that liquid too. Baking soda is a good cleaning and deodorizing agent and I believe it has a beneficial effect on any kind of skin. Pregnant women sometimes use it to relieve the itching sensation caused by their belly stretching. My guess is that the mild alkali combines with skin oil just as it does with hair oils to form a natural soap. One thing's for sure, a soda wash leaves you feeling clean and refreshed. As you bath, after you bath, put a new supply of warm water in the basin, dunk your head again, massage your scalp with your fingertips, then comb out the soda water along with the remaining dirt. You'll have a sweet-smelling, clean head of hair, and there'll be no leftover soap to make your scalp itch. The key to a successful baking soda shampoo is soft water, and I found that I get the best results with melted snow. Rainwater ought to be equally soft, but I think it may be affected by the containers, galvanized metal especially, that you catch it in. However, if you want to break away from soaps and shampoos, just try mixing up a baking soda solution using the softest water you're able to obtain. I can practically guarantee that you'll be pleased with the results. There was a time when I felt that a sponge bath was something you got in the hospital when you were too sick to make it to the shower. Now that I've bathed out of a basin for 10 years, I realize that showers and bathtubs are nothing more than very nice, but also very unnecessary luxuries. Um, there's an editor's note at the very bottom. It says, whenever you use a new substance on your skin or scalp, make a small patch test to check for any possible allergic reactions. All right, so there are, uh, there are a couple of uh, comments here in the, um, in the, uh, the article you'll, you'll want to go check out. So that's interesting, you know, bake, using baking soda and, uh, you know, a little bit of water and combing through your hair. Uh, I've never tried that before. Maybe uh, when I go up to the country and we spend a couple of days up there and, and we need to get cleaned up. I and mean, we always clean up at night using something very similar to this. And usually it's hot. So, um, you know, we it's cool water is fine, which coming out of the well, the water is ice cold, man. It's crazy. But... Uh, you know, in, I know that, you know, towards the winter times, dad has heated up water to wash off and, and things like that, but never combing the hair. Uh, we're just not up there that long, but I might try just to see what it's like and, and you know, go for it. Uh, 
it's just that when we go up there, man, we're always working. We're working our butts off. And uh, so usually we're pooped out at the, at the end of the day. I, I know some of you who are, you know, working on a homestead or whatever know exactly what that's like because you get that every single day, right? All right. Well, hey, um, it, have a great weekend. I mean, you, as you, if you're listening to this on Friday or, you know, even Saturday, uh, you know, have a great weekend. Go out there and enjoy it. Uh, we've got some great things planned, uh, celebrating my son's graduation. And so we're, we're excited for that, uh, trying to, you know, clean up the backyard and stuff because we've we got people coming over and trying to make it look presentable uh, and all that good stuff. But, uh, yeah, try to get outside and enjoy enjoy uh, the weekend with all that. And thanks so much for uh, for listening to Episode 75. Uh, with that, let me go ahead and close out. Choose to live a more self-reliant life. Choose not to be so dependent on the government grid or the grind. Until next week, stay prepped and aware. Peace.